1: News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi.
2: The governments of Canada and Nova Scotia are launching a joint independent review of the April events to be conducted by a three-member independent review panel.
3: All right, so that's Canada's Minister of Public Safety and Emergency Preparedness, Bill Blair, announcing yesterday a review of that horrific shooting rampage in Portapique, Nova Scotia. 22 people were killed. Well, to learn more about this now and the reaction to this independent review, we're joined now by Global News reporter Alicia Drauss. Alicia, thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. I know there have been a lot of calls for some kind of a review. Is this what people were looking for?
4: This is not what people were looking for. There were a lot of calls for a public inquiry, both from just Nova Scotians uh, to senators to the actual families of the victims. Um, and a review falls flat of what a public inquiry would offer.
3: And why, why have there been those calls? What are people unhappy with?
4: Right. So a review is um, done by a three-person panel. Um, They'll, you know, interview witnesses, look into what happened and put out an interim report in February and then a final report in August 2021. But that is about the extent of what public will see is those two reports. Meanwhile, a public inquiry, the whole process would be done in the public. Um, It would also have the ability to subpoena evidence as well as compel witnesses to testify under oath. Both those things are missing in a review.
3: Right, okay. So clearly there's a lot of questions that people want to see answered. Can you give us an idea of what some of those questions are?
4: Yeah, so like you said, lots of questions. So some of the big things are, I mean, how the the gunman kind of, his violent past fell through the cracks. So neighbours had alerted police years previous to this incident about um, him having weapons, um, possibly illegally. I don't know if that was known at the time, but they were um, right. kept illegally. Uh, He had also been accused of um, abusing his his domestic partner, um, and that had been witnessed and, again, uh, had been reported to police, but nothing was seemingly done about it. So that's one of the big questions. The other big question is um, the police reaction. Why was there no alert to the public that this gunman was on the loose? He was on the loose for 13 hours. And the public was never notified aside from on Twitter.
3: Have there ever been explanations about that? I mean, the fact that they knew very early on that it sounded like the suspect was driving around in an RCMP, what looked like an RCMP vehicle. Why didn't they say anything?
4: Yeah, exactly. Um, They've never really fully addressed that. The extent of addressing that was just to say, you know, we put out alerts on Twitter, we felt that that was sufficient, and we were working on an emergency alert to everybody, but they had caught him by the time they had, I don't know, gotten the right approvals. But again, that's 13 hours after they knew what was going on.
3: All right. How long is this review going to take and when does it get underway?
4: Yeah, so the review is supposed to get underway at the end of August, um, and then it should be completed within a year. So we'll see that interim report in February and then a final report with recommendations next August.
3: And are they able to compel any kind of information from the RCMP, which is, of course, notoriously very tight-lipped?
4: Yeah, exactly. And so that's one of the big issues. So both ministers say that they have the ability to make sure that they are participating fully and that they have all organizations cooperation. That being said, they can't subpoena witness and they can't actually compel anyone to testify under oath. So so those are two problems being raised.
3: No, no kidding. Now, it does sound like it's going to be a very frustrating process. So given everything, th- it doesn't sound like, Alicia, that Nova Scotians are going to get the answers they're looking for here.
4: No, and I mean, families are frustrated. Yesterday, families put out a statement saying this is not what they had called for. They had called for a public inquiry. Um, and that uh, one of the reasons also ministers said they chose this was to protect the families, so not to re-traumatize them having to go through everything. But in the statement from families, it says they don't want to be protected and they want to participate in this.
3: Right. So they're using the families as the excuse, but the families are saying don't do that because we want the answers. Exactly, exactly. So everyone's calling for
4: more answers. It doesn't really seem like anyone's on board with this review.
3: Oh, interesting. All right, Alicia, thank you. Thank you very much. That is Global News reporter Alicia Drouse joining us from Nova Scotia with the reaction to the announcement from Bill Blair, the public safety minister yesterday, that they will uh, continue on with a three-person independent panel to review Nova Scotia's uh, the horrific shooting there that led to the deaths of 22 people earlier this year. I know it's hard to believe it was earlier this year, right? 2020 has just been so crazy. Well, we've been hearing a lot about serological testing recently, and now we have more news on that. Canadian Blood Services and the COVID-19 Immunity Task Force have released the results of their serological testing on 10,000 samples that had been gathered from blood donors. So the McGill Professor of Population and Public Health, Dr. Catherine Hawkins, is the co-chair of that task force and joins us now to talk more about what they found. Thank you very much for being here.
5: Hi, Simi, okay?
3: Yeah, good morning. So 10,000 samples, this is a pretty
5: thorough review then, I guess, of the Canadian blood samples. It's actually just a first glimpse because uh, 37,800 have been collected in nine provinces outside Quebec and 7,000 have been collected in Quebec. So this is just the first 10,000 and it excludes the Quebec results and it just gives us a snapshot of antibodies in the population. And you have to remember that blood donors are generally quite healthy, and they're a volunteer population between 17 and 70. So they're not totally representative of the Canadian population. Okay, so what did we learn from this? What we learned, we had sort of some good news and some bad news in a sense. I guess um, the good news might be that if you look at um, the ratio of the numbers of found positive in this blood donor survey, if you look at the numbers and you compare that to our COVID cases that have been reported, There's a huge difference. There's a big difference. Many more people have been infected with COVID than are reported in the case reports that are based basically on the the testing with the swab for the virus. So in a sense, that's good news because it means there must have been a lot of asymptomatic or low symptom type uh, people in the population. It also brings down the fatality rate. Before, we thought the fatality rate was around 8%. It's probably around 1%. Um, The bad news is that the vast majority of Canadians are still susceptible. This is, uh, you know, less than 1%. So it means we really need to be doubling down and not relaxing up just because we're starting a beautiful summer or we're in a beautiful summer.
3: Right, so if, if anybody thought that there was some mild form that would help us achieve any kind of herd immunity, it doesn't sound like that's going to happen.
5: We're nowhere near that. Herd immunity is thought to be like 60 to 70% of the population. So we can't just let this virus run its course and think that that's going to be the way that we'll be protected.
3: Right. So this is a a really thorough then look at that. Was it about what you expected, Dr. Hankins, or did you think that there was going to be more of it out there?
5: I expected about this, um, you know, I have to admit that, um, you know, my co-chair and other members of the task force thought it would be a little bit higher. I think one of the things we need to do is when we get the full sample, we need to adjust for the test performance. We need to adjust for the fact that blood donors are a very healthy population. And we have a tracker on our website, and I encourage people to go and look at that, that looks at studies from all over the world. And we asked our tracker team to look at the comparison between studies of blood donors and studies of the general population to see how much of an underestimate the blood donors might be. And it's maybe it maybe would be 50% higher, so maybe you know, one4 1.5% mm-hmm. 1. instead of just below 1%. And then we'll be able to calculate the ratio and know for sure how many antibody positive to how many reported cases, and we'll have the data by age and by sex and by province, which will be very useful for decision-makers in each province.
3: And how did we rate against you know, versus other countries who have done similar types of testing?
5: Well, I mean, we're obviously way less than our neighbors to the south. (laughs) Thank heavens. (laughs) Um, Each country is different, and different assays are being used in different countries. What I thought was interesting was that the the BC study that was reported by Danuta Skrouronsky a little earlier uh, is very similar in its conclusions about BC from residual blood, from blood left over from other tests. So we're seeing, um, I would say, for Canada as a whole... Um, We are doing well compared to some other countries, but Mm -hmm. it doesn't protect us. We need to... Do everything we're doing, wearing masks, um, basically in all indoor confined spaces, um, you know, where we're with people that uh, are not part of our bubble, wash our hands, maintain that physical distancing, even though we want to be socially close and we should try to be socially close, just to try to maintain that physical distancing as is recommended.
3: Does this also perhaps inform policy towards how we're going to
5: approach having
3: a vaccine?
5: Absolutely, absolutely. Because what we're going to be able to see is what is the proportion of the population that needs to be vaccinated, and then we get into the tricky, tricky decision making about how do we roll it out, who goes first, and presumably we would want to have kind sort of an all of society discussion about yes. who is most vulnerable. And you can think of vaccine going to uh, elderly people, to healthcare workers. To prisoners, to homeless, you, you can imagine, you know, there would be a discussion, a, a very acute discussion involving a lot of people about yeah. how best to do this. But
3: this would also tell us, like, how many doses we should plan for.
5: It, it would tell us how many doses we should plan for if only one dose is needed. We don't know yet if these vaccines are going to need booster doses. And, um, I, I mean, I personally am very positive that we will get a vaccine, but, you know, we still have some road to go before we see that. So we need to be really careful going forward and try to be as safe as possible.
3: So is this something you will continue to monitor? Like, will more testing be done to see if the same results come up?
5: Yeah, we have a lot of other studies coming down. We have uh, an antenatal study. So right across Canada and the territories, and the territories were not in in this blood study, by the way. Um, Pregnant women are tested for uh, things like German measles, rubella, and so on. And we will have uh, the possibility to take uh, leftover specimens from those and find out right across the country um, what proportion of pregnant women have been uh, infected by the virus. And this gives us a good idea of the reproductive age group Uh, We have a study that will be starting in elderly, 55 and older, that are in a cohort already. We have studies that are being planned now in Indigenous populations who are clearly at higher risk if the the virus actually gets into their communities. Um, We're hoping to start a household study that would give us a truly representative uh, survey of Canada as a whole and all population groups, and that would be run by Statistics Canada we're trying to look as well at uh, pediatrics, at children. We want to look um, at corrections if we can. We want to look at, um, you know, just various groups mm-hmm. that, think, that, that we think ought to be addressed and that may not be being addressed, you know, such as homeless people um, and marginalized people.
3: Right, lots of work to do. Thank you very much for your time today. You're welcome. Have a great day. You too. That is Dr. Catherine Hankins, Professor of Population and Public Health at McGill University, talking about uh, Canadian Blood Services and the COVID 19 Immunity Task Force releasing the results of their serological testing on 10,000 samples that they had gathered from blood donors. And it shows that the virus is there, present in many Canadians who were asymptomatic, perhaps didn't even know that they had it or had very mild symptoms of COVID 19, but also not nearly as widespread as people might have thought, meaning that vaccine will definitely be needed here in Canada once somebody, some team of researchers does manage to finalize that. Now, come on, be honest. How many times have you said to a friend of yours or maybe a relative that, oh, you know what, when I check this lottery ticket, if I win the lottery, I'm going to give you some of this, you know, if I win $10 million, I'm going to give you a million dollars. That's all well and good, right? Until you actually win the lottery. And then in all too many cases, we know it's a completely different story, but not for the uh, two people we're going to be talking about right now. Nikki Reitmeyer joins us. Hi, Nikki.
6: Good morning, Simi. It's it's funny to picture what you would do in this scenario, right? I mean, here you have two friends back in 1992 and they say to each other, you know, if one of us wins the lottery, we're going to split it with each other. Okay. And then they, they shake hands on it. So it was this this guy named Joseph. Yeah. In 1992. And lo and behold, Tom just last month he walks into a gas station, he buys a lottery ticket, like we've all done a million times, and he ends up winning $22 million. So what do you do? You know, you made this this You're promise like, back in 1992... Do you, do you stick to it? Do you stick to your Or word? do you go
3: like, dude, I don't think Joe remembers. we had been having a few beers. I don't think Joe remembers that we <laughs> shook hands on this thing.
6: <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Trying to go back, okay, how many beers did Joseph have? How many years has it been? Maybe he forgot his memory hasn't been great lately. No, instead, Tom... True to yeah, his word, amazing. split the money with his buddy Joseph. So they took the cash payout option, which was a little bit less than sort of what that first first prize was. It worked out to about $16.7 million. You minus the taxes. You split it between the two friends. And they both ended up walking away with about $5.7 bucks.
3: One, that's a travesty, given that they won $22 million. Oh, yeah. that's, that's, I was that's, doing the math on that, story, yeah. and I thought, thank goodness we live in Canada where they don't tax your lottery winnings because in the States oh, they take a good chunk out of that. But I also very much admired it because I saw, the, I saw a little story with them where they asked Tom, like, why did you do this? And he kind of was like, well, of course I did it. We shook hands on it. And I thought, what a lovely wow. human being you must be. Like, it just seemed anathema to him that I that he wouldn't do this like of course I was going to share with my friend yeah we shook hands on it Why would you do that do I mean oh well, come <laughs> on fess up
6: yes you know what to be to be perfectly honest I would and if <laughs> look you know I would tell you <laughs> if this is something I felt <laughs> I wouldn't do I think that I would you know you, you make a promise to someone especially if it's a friend and come on it's 5.7 million bucks I mean these guys they're they're a little bit older. They're going to be good for the rest of their lives. I mean, that's a yes. good chunk of cash to walk away with. You know, sure, twenty-two million dollars sounds pretty appealing, but now you've got a friend to spend it with, and you each have you know five point so seven true. million dollars. Maybe you buy vacation homes somewhere in the world together, and and you can keep up that friendship.
3: You know, how, how about you? Well, so what's so nice about that too is that it could have gone the other way, right? Too often we hear oh. about it going the other way, and that winning the lottery ruins lives and ruins relationships. I've read way too many stories about that. So every once in a while, Nikki, I get sucked in by the big jackpots, right? Be standing there in the lineup at the grocery store and they've always got the sign right there that says, you know, this week's jackpot is, you know, $20 million. And I think, oh, I should get a ticket. It's $20 million. Then in my head, I start running through what I would do with that money if I want. Yes. And then it's yes. like, okay, well, I'd have to set this aside for the kids, and I'd have to set this aside. And then I start going through my list of relatives, and I come from a very large family mm-hmm. and when I when I get down to like number 10 or 15 and I'm still handing out money I don't bother buying the lottery ticket because I'm like yeah. you know what this is just too much trouble and I'll give it to somebody else who's obviously more deserving and perhaps doesn't have to worry as much about those things.
6: Yeah you too many people in the family to give money to you'd be broke by the time you had right. all that cash. Yeah,
3: Maybe it's yeah you can talk yourself out of buying the lottery I just, ticket. I also don't think I, you could make everybody happy and that's the other problem oh, right you yeah. can't like I'm sure Tom, lovely man that he is sharing this money with Joe. There must be somebody that Tom knows who's like, I can't believe you didn't give me some of that money. Do you know what I mean?
6: Oh, you'd have friends coming out of the woodwork—people yes. who you haven't seen since elementary school—that would be suddenly <laughs> calling you, going, "We sat together in grade three at the same table, and I can't believe that you didn't share some of this five point seven million dollars with me." I mean, you'd have people coming out of everywhere complaining that they that they didn't get any money from you. But yeah, I mean, here, so Tom gave you know his buddy half of what he what he'd won but you know how many people then did tom end up splitting that cash with he sounds like a generous guy right
3: but let's say you were out nikki having a good time maybe you'd had a couple drinks and you said to a friend you know if i win the lottery i'm going to share that money with you and then you actually won the lottery would you go back and share the money with that person or would you pretend that you were too drunk to remember what you had said (laughs) it depends how good the friend was but to be fair Uh, All of my friends who go
6: drinking with me know I make a lot of promises after I've had a couple (laughs) drinks. There are many vacations we've planned after a few beers. Yeah, no, guys, we're definitely going to go to Mexico. Yeah, no, no, 100% we're going to do it. And you wake up the next day. And they send you a message, go, so you're still in for that trip, right? And you go, what trip? Uh, <laughs> what trip? Yeah, no, no, no Mexico trip this year. I imagine the lottery winnings would be the same thing. My friends would take me with a grain assault. salt, I'm sure.
3: Oh, I don't know. We'll see about that. Thanks for that, Nikki. <laughs> would you do it? Would you share your lottery winnings based on a handshake with a friend from decades ago? Email me, simi me at cknw.com. This episode is brought to you by Shopify.
0: the Seattle Kraken, the 32nd NHL franchise, comes to life. The team says it is inspired by the city's proximity to the sea and honours its Maritimes history.
3: I like it. Seattle Kraken. That was a big announcement. We talked about it yesterday on the show. What I particularly like is the colour scheme they are going for in the uniforms, that turquoise, the black, the little bit of red. Very, very nice. So we now know what the official Vancouver Canucks rivals are going to look like and what their names are going to be. But there's a whole bunch of other sports news out there, too. So let's talk about it. Joining us now is Christian O'Mel, host of the CJOB Sports Show. Hi, Christian. Good morning, Sammy. Like nothing to talk about for months. And now there's like a ton of sports information.
2: It's going to be overwhelming starting in a week when we have six hockey games a day. We've got all the baseball, basketball. You've got the MLS. There's golf still. It's going to be almost too much to keep track of once we get there.
3: How successful has the return to soccer been at this point?
2: Rocky start when you had two teams withdraw because half their team had COVID-19. But after that, I think it's gone pretty well. The, the quality of play hasn't been the best, which I assume is going to be a precursor for what we see in other leagues when they start up, just because, Hey, if you haven't played for months, there's going to be rust. right? And I think now that we're into the knockout stage, I think some, you know, hardcore soccer fans have been paying attention to this because there's hasn't been anything else. But I, I wonder if anyone else is going to hop on board because of the knockout round. That's more intense, but it's also starting up when other sports are going to be happening. So I'm, I'm thinking for the MLS, it might kind of just get washed out here yeah. in terms of public attention. A lot of people might not notice that it's even happening.
3: I did um, watch some of the NBA scrimmages that have been happening last night, Lakers and Mavericks, which of course two teams everybody wants to see. There seems to be a bit of excitement about the NBA coming back too.
2: Oh, for sure. and the fact that they're in the bubble and no one's tested positive for COVID-19 is a great sign. They've rigged up the, the court uniquely for I saw this where yeah. they've got the, the big screen behind where yeah. sometimes there's going to be images of fans cheering and they've still got the let's go whatever team name going, which I find a little odd because no one's chanting that in there, even if it's fake, but we're seeing that in other broadcasts for the MLB too. And I'm wondering what they'll do for the NHL with where they got piped in fan noise to make it seem a little less weird.
3: Yeah. Let's talk a little bit about the NHL here too. You mentioned they're going to what start up in about a week or so.
2: Well, the first official games are next Saturday. There will be exhibition games starting on Tuesday in both Edmonton and Toronto. Yeah.
3: Okay. What did you think of the Seattle Kraken uh, name and logo?
2: I think it's great. I mean, we've known for a while or figured for a while that Kraken was going to be the name. It's just a matter of the branding and the logo looks great. I think the secondary logo with the Space Needle as part of the anchor, I think, looks awesome. And the color scheme, you mentioned it. The It's actually not black. It's the darkest blue that Adidas has. It's called Midnight. Really? So it is a deep, deep blue to represent the ocean. Yeah, And then they've got the aquamarine and the red trim. I think it's unique. I think I've seen a lot of people supporting it, which is great because, and I, I have heard of some people, oh, Kraken's so dumb. No, it's unique. <laughs> the colors are unique. Let it go. They're on the Pacific Northwest. I know it's a Scandinavian thing, but whatever. It's, it's cool. Let it, let it go. Let
3: it be cool. I also think it's a good vehicle for them to build a, like a show around, right? To build some excitement around in the arena.
2: Oh, absolutely. And it's also a great cross promotion because there's a movie about it and there's a brand of rum that's already the official (laughs) rum of the team. So it's perfect.
3: (laughs) Yes, that is perfect. Uh, Let's talk a little bit about football here too. So we know there's hub cities going on for things like the NHL, the NBA. What's going on with the CFL?
2: The CFL has said that if they do have games, Winnipeg will be the location. That's a small step to climb. The big steps are A, getting money from the federal government to make it happen and B, trying to convince the players that it's worth their time to come up here to play six games at a reduced salary, 11 weeks maybe in a hotel in Winnipeg. I'm not sure they're going to do it. And yes, maybe for the long-term health of the league, they they should do it. But again, those are two enormous hills still to climb, and they're going to probably find out in the next eh, 24 hours if that's going to happen.
3: All right, we will wait for that. Kristen, thank you. Thank you. Christian O'Mel, hosted the CJOB Sports Show, talking about everything going on in the world of sports. CFL, as you mentioned, still waiting to find out if they are going to embrace the Winnipeg as a hub city situation, if the players will actually show up. As you've been hearing in the news, Pretty sizable chunk of change for public transit announced yesterday from the federal government for British Columbia. So let's talk about how that money is going to be distributed, where it's going and where it's not. Joining us now is Jonathan Wilkinson, the Federal Minister of the Environment and Climate Change. Thank you very much for being here.
7: Not at all. Thanks for having me.
3: And so what was the money targeted for? What is the the parameters for BC?
7: Well, uh, BC is receiving um, a little over two billion dollars for a range of activities. Yesterday, what I was talking about um, was the money for public transit and and for public transit across the province, which is about five hundred and forty million dollars to keep transit systems operating during a time when obviously the ridership has decreased. But uh, but the broader package includes money for uh, for seniors care homes. It involves money for uh, or sick days off for people so they don't go back to work at a time when they're sick. It involves some money for daycare to try to provide some relief for parents who are considering going back to work. And it certainly involves uh, some money for, uh, for uh, testing and contact tracing to ensure that we can actually continue to manage through this period when the virus still exists.
3: All right. So this is, sounds like it's money to essentially keep the transit systems afloat a little bit.
7: It is. Yeah, it definitely is. Um, Transit systems obviously were hit very hard during the pandemic. And uh, obviously, we all want public transit systems to continue to operate. They're critical as we move back towards a new normal to uh, ensuring people can get to where they need to go. Uh, It's critical to not having enormous traffic congestion on our roads, which would make our city increasingly difficult. Um, And it's certainly critical from the perspective of reducing greenhouse gas emissions and fighting climate change.
3: Is this a concern right across Canada, Minister, the fact that transit systems, it seems like in big cities everywhere, are struggling right now because a lot of people just don't feel comfortable getting on transit?
7: Yeah, that's certainly part of it. Um, you know, I mean, through, through the course of, of the pandemic, uh, people just haven't been going to work as much and, and, and traveling around as much, and so that's had a big impact on the number of riders. As we, uh, we start to move towards a, a, a relaxation Obviously, a relaxation with some, some significant vigilance um, that, uh, that uh, we will see more people using. And I think TransLink has seen an uptick in terms of the number of ridership. But certainly there are many who still worry about being in an enclosed space. Um, and, uh, and so it is important during a period where, uh, where ridership is likely not to go back to exactly where it was in the short term that these systems continue to operate.
3: So this money is for the kind of day-to-day operation, not for any kind of projects that may be in the pipeline.
7: It is, and, and, it, and it is quite a departure because typically operating costs for transit systems are not something the federal government is involved in. We, right. we have funded parts of capital in the past. Um, but, uh, but we made the decision that in the context of what we call the safe restart, which is you know trying to ensure the systems are in place, to ensure people can start to go about their lives in a somewhat normal way, um, that uh, that these systems are going to be operating. And and so we made the decision, and it doesn't apply just to the Lower Mainland. I mean, certainly Toronto and Montreal and other large centres, public transit is critical. So, uh, so it was an important step.
3: What are some of the challenges, do you think, in the months ahead for the federal government and the provinces here? I mean, you know, we're still in the middle of this thing, clearly still concerned about numbers rising, How do we start to get the economy back to normal?
7: Well, it's interesting. I mean, the economy is, uh, you know, if you think about it, it's really sector by sector. There are some economies that are functioning relatively normally already. And then there are a number of sectors that obviously have been, you know, really hit hard and and probably will continue to have challenges for the foreseeable future. If you think about tourism that relies on international travelers, for example, and the hospitality industry that relies... On tourism, um, so I think we have to look at uh, at the sectors where uh, where the, the damage is greatest, and and think about how we can uh, be best of assistance in terms of getting people through. Certainly, the government has acted in pretty bold ways over the course of the last number of months to ensure people had food on their table, to try to actually ensure that small businesses could survive. But we're going to have to work our way through this step by step um, in the absence of a vaccine. Uh, or, or some kind of treatment, an antiviral treatment or other. Um, we're just going to have to continue to be vigilant and to try to move back uh, to uh, to something that will allow us to continue to have a, a, a strong economy, but do so in a manner that's going to be safe.
3: You mentioned the tourism and hospitality industry there, also huge right across Canada. Do you foresee some help coming for those sectors?
7: Well, those sectors have been helped through through the programming that we've put into place. I mean, the, the wage subsidy and, and a range of, of tools with respect to business loans um, have certainly applied to those sectors. I think that as we go forward, we're going to have to continue to, to watch uh, and, and to understand which sectors have been most affected and how long we think that will continue to be the case and, and make a determination as to whether more... Uh, more engagement with those sectors is required, but but at this stage, I mean the, the scale of the government's response has probably been the largest response by any uh, federal government in you know since since wartime.
3: So this money for transit then that is coming to BC, how is that going to be spread out?
7: That's uh, that's still the subject of negotiation. And the details will be provided over the course of the coming weeks. We're working with uh, Premier Horgan and his team. To uh, to lay out exactly how that's going to be spent uh, through the different parts of the province, but certainly a good chunk of the money will flow to TransLink in the Lower Mainland.
3: All right, uh, thank you very much for your time.
7: Not at all, thank you.
3: That is Jonathan Wilkinson, Federal Minister of the Environment and Climate Change, of course, the MP from over in North Vancouver, talking about money coming to British Columbia, hundreds of millions of dollars that is designated for operating transit. Usually, when I shouldn't say even usually just about every single time. This is the only time I can think of when money comes to the province that is for transit. uh, It is usually for a project, right? Oh, we're going to, this is for Surrey Skytrain, or this is for Surrey Light Rail, which got shifted to Surrey Skytrain. This is for the UBC, you know, potential UBC subway. That is not the case with this. This is for operating the transit systems. As we know, uh, transit systems right across the country have just been uh, hit hard by the COVID-19 pandemic. Lack of ridership means they're not collecting fares. Uh, Lack of people driving on the roads meaning they're not collecting fuel taxes. So it's just one hit after another. And TransLink has definitely been struggling under that weight. So TransLink will get some of this money as will BC Transit. Uh, So other kind of transit organizations within the province will get that. Uh, But where and how much is still being worked out?
4: This is not what people were looking for. There were a lot of calls for a public inquiry, both from just Nova Scotians uh, to senators to the actual families of the victims. Um, And a review falls flat of what a public inquiry would offer. All
3: right. That is Global News Halifax reporter Alicia Drow. She spoke with us earlier on the show this morning, and it was devastating news for the families of the victims of the horrific massacre in Portapique, Nova Scotia earlier this year, because everyone has been calling for a public inquiry into what happened that day. But... The federal and provincial governments yesterday kind of officially closed that door with this three-person independent review that they announced. Now, recently, I've been reading a lot about what happened in Porta Peak during that 24-hour period. And I have to tell you, you've got to read the article written by our next guest. He's Nova Scotia journalist and the author of three books on the RCMP. It is Paul Palango. Paul, thank you so much for joining us.
1: Well, glad to be here.
3: What did you think about the government announcement yesterday?
1: Well, I actually was told weeks ago and I was on radio in Halifax saying that this was going to be the result. The decision had come down and that uh, I made sure that I got the piece you're talking about and the one before it in. So they couldn't say uh, they're going to call uh, uh, a review without knowing any of the details. And as I think you'll agree in the last two articles in the examiner, I did 10,000 words of detail that put it right in their face. And you can't say you didn't know about this. So they did know about it. They still called an inquiry and what, or called call for a review. And what this means is they make it, it's a lot of window dressing. They make it look like this is an important thing. We have a former Chief Justice of Nova Scotia, McDonald, uh, former uh, Attorney General, Justice Minister, Ann McClellan, former Police Chief, Leanne Fitch, but they have no power. So McDonald could be a judge, but he's not serving as a judge. He's just serving as basically, my friend Stephen Marr, McLean's called it, a conductor. He can't compel witnesses. He can't compel evidence. He can't do anything without the approval of the police force or the respective Solicitor Generals.
3: Right. So, they, But they have the information available to them, Paul, that you had to write your articles, which were incredibly detailed, digging into the timeline of what happened that night. And there's so many points in there where I was shaking my head going, I, I can't believe this is how it went. What do you, how do you classify how the RCMP approached that situation?
1: <clears throat> well, I think the the headline in the second article, an epic failure of policing pretty well sums it up because we don't really know how what they didn't do you know in those articles i find out they never do anything right they never get in front of the shooter they have like uh 13 and a half hours they never they have numerous opportunities maybe eight nine ten opportunities to set up a roadblock never do that that one of their own policemen wanders into the scene and gets killed and right from the outset the problems with what the police are saying have been evident it's not i don't believe the timeline anymore at the beginning where they say we got the first call at ten o one we were there at ten twenty six and workman escaped through a side road at ten thirty five and then he went and had a nap somewhere and then he started a second day of massacres. There's something wrong with that story why to me it just doesn't make sense why well because he killed 13 people, set numerous fires, um, and they're they're trying to lead us to believe that the shooting began at 10 o'clock. They got to call it 10:01. Got there at 10:26 on that road. The the amount of destruction and all that went on, I don't think could have happened in 20 minutes or 25 minutes or five minutes, whatever they're saying. I think it started earlier. I think the RCMP may well have been there earlier. That's what I suspect.
3: You also point out in that article that clearly within the first hour of the RCMP arriving there, they were aware that their suspect was driving around in what looked like an RCMP vehicle. And yet that alert didn't go out.
1: No, and everyone else. There was a a person who was shot coming out of the road when workman... This is part of the timeline problem I have. He's coming out of the road uh up to highway two and he says he gets shot by wortman in a, a guy he believes is Wertman who he knows in a police car an rcmp police car Wertman's going into the road down towards the water so it's a dead-end road um he goes up and there's a police are sitting at the top of the road so the police are already there when he gets shot but the, the police are making it sound like this happened around 10.35 at hmm. night, something like that. It just doesn't jibe. There's something. There's something wrong.
3: The other things story. that really bothered me in reading your article was it seemed like a lack of organization on the part of the RCMP, not using the same channel to communicate, not having one officer who showed up at the scene during that time to say, I am now in charge here. This is what's going to be happening.
1: Yeah, none of that happened. In fact, the corporal who showed up, uh, I, I think she was the third car, and she showed up and panicked. And I heard this from the first day, and I've been trying to confirm and finally got some more confirmation on it recently, that she froze in the car, people were banging on her windows, trying to get her to do something. Eventually, she apparently runs into the woods and turns off her flashlight and hides. Another super, supervisor is either... Is, in the uh, detachment, his son is the second car to arrive, which is a conflict right away. You shouldn't have that sort of situation in the RCMP, a, father, a son with a father supervisor in the same detachment. Um, and then a supervisor, we're not sure which one it is, tells a tactical officer who wants to go down the road and save lives, preserve lives, is told if you go down that road, it'll be your last shift in the RCMP. So the RCMP did nothing. They did nothing to preserve lives over a two-day period, even though they talked about Wirtman being this clever, diabolical guy who outfoxed him. That's not what happened. Do, they, you know, they, do the local people believe the story? Well, it's funny, when I started out doing this, from the, the first day when I started to raise questions about Heidi Stevenson, the RCMP officer was killed, I, you know, I asked on CBC, why was she out there by herself? This guy had just killed 18 people, and she was on the road by herself. And the family, some of the family members and locals went after me for being so mean to the police. Now, a couple of months down the road and like 12 articles later, Mm -hmm. they had 300 of them marched on the detachment the other day. Really? Yeah, 300 marched on the detachment in Bible Hill, uh, protesting that the police didn't, they want answers. And the response from the government, and this is the federal government that's running this thing, I'm convinced, that they don't want an inquiry. They don't want get, to get to the bottom of this because whatever they're going to find is going to be a, a, a fatal blow to the RCMP. Look Paul. what's
3: going on in Surrey. Oh, I know. Yeah, look I'm wondering, Paul, when you, look at, when you look at the structure of the RCMP then, as you're saying there, what caused this to happen? Is it the structure? Is it too politicized? Is too, is, are they too worried about their career inside there? How can something like this happen within the RCMP?
1: Well, it's all those things. I've been arguing for in 20 more than 20 years the structure of the RCMP causes all its problems. It's sexism, it's it's incompetence, all of those things. And the the RCMP operates as a contract police force outside of Ontario and Quebec providing policing services that are subsidized by the federal government. But you get what you pay for, and that's the issue in Surrey. That's the issue in Red Deer, Alberta, and in the province of Alberta. They're starting, people are starting to realize, yeah, the federal government's uh, subsidizing our policing, but we're getting shitty policing. Uh, we need to do it ourselves and have some control of it. And, and so the RCMP, what's going on in Nova Scotia, what's going on in Surrey are critical to the future of the RCMP. Because if they lose Surrey and they or they lose Nova Scotia or both, right. it's pretty well ended as a contract policing force. And the provinces and municipalities will have to pay for their own policing, which is should, the way it should be then the police will be held responsible and accountable for what they do. But right now we have a system that works against that.
3: Well, Paul, I hope you'll come back and join us sometime and talk more about this. Hey,
1: call anytime.
3: All right. Thank you very much for that. That's Paul Palango, Nova Scotia journalist, author of three books on the RCMP, writing for the Halifax Examiner. Check out his articles online as he dives very deeply into the timeline, the step-by-step thing of gathering information from people in the neighborhood, from the RCMP response, just from information that is publicly publicly available. And I think you'll be very surprised that you see what actually unfolded that night in Pic. We'll be right back. You have wondered, as I have every time I pay for parking in the city of Vancouver, where does Vancouver rank on the list of the world's most expensive cities to park in? You must think... Well, we got to be near the top somewhere, right? Well, recently, a company came out with a survey of parking rates in cities all over the world, and our Nikki Retmeier took a look. If you haven't been going
6: downtown a lot lately since the pandemic started, perhaps you've forgotten just how expensive it can be to park anywhere in Vancouver. Remember what it felt like to put a dollar in the parking meter and see you only got 10 or 15 minutes? Well, to make you feel slightly better about Vancouver's seemingly insanely high parking fees, a new list has been released of the most expensive cities for parking in the world. Can you guess which city ranked first as being the most expensive place to park your car? Number one, New York City. Where to park your car in the shopping district can cost you 30 bucks an hour. Number two is Boston. Number three on the list is Sydney, Australia. And number four, London, England. Before we find out where Vancouver is on this list, let's first find out a bit more about how the list was created. The 2020 Parking Price Index was compiled by a company called Fixter. Their co-founder and CEO is Limverick Chia. So the way we did it, we found the cost of parking per hour for a selection
8: of locations within each city, and we used this cost to create a comparable list of parking fees. And we displayed the data in a way that quickly allows a global comparison between the cost in each city overall, as well as comparing the cost between locations in each city. And we display the results as a percentage deviation from average global cost, which shows how each parking charge compares to the average cost worldwide.
6: So there's the technical side of how the list was created. Now, let's talk about where Vancouver ranks on this list of world's most expensive cities to park in.
8: Well, Vancouver falls in position 36 overall, which is roughly mid-table in our index, and came in as the least expensive Canadian city in our index.
6: That's right. Vancouver was 36th overall, and we actually ranked as the least expensive major Canadian city that was included in the index. Believe it or not, our airport parking and city hall parking is actually pretty inexpensive when you look at other big cities in this country. Vancouver had the least expensive airport parking costs in Canada.
8: It also offers the cheapest city hall parking costs out of the Canadian cities included.
6: So, well, we may think that our parking fees seem really high. We're actually quite middle-of-the-road when compared to the rest of the world and low when compared to other Canadian cities on this index. But I had one more question for Limverick, a question that expands outside of just Vancouver's parking situation. I was curious to know, how has the pandemic affected city revenue all around the world? As you've probably noticed, the roads were a lot quieter over the past few months. Less people driving means less people parking. For a while in Vancouver, they even stopped charging at parking meters. So how has the pandemic affected the cash that typically flows from parking meters to city hall?
8: This is a very good question, right? So the pandemic had has led to cities losing an estimated 62% of their usual annual revenue due to less people paying towards public parking. Some cities have already announced that costs are likely going to go up for public transport to help recoup lost income from lockdown. So There may be valid queries here from members of the public who may wonder if the cost of public parking will also rise.
6: Last year, the city collected over $60 million from street parking, an increase of over 400% over the past 20 years. For this year, the city of Vancouver had budgeted to get $98 million from parking meters and parking bylaw fines. But in April, only about 25% of parking revenue was being collected. So in future, will Vancouver climb higher on this parking index list of the world's most expensive cities to park in? Or will that lost revenue
3: be collected in other ways? For 980 CKNW, I'm Nikki Reitmeyer. Well, before we leave you on this Friday morning, we thought, you know, all the news, there's been kind of some like negative news. We thought, let's leave on a lighter note. Nikki Reitmeyer is bringing that to us this morning. Hi, Nikki.
6: Good morning, Simmy. We've heard so many stories of frustrated British Columbians upset with seeing out-of-province license plates driving around on our yes. streets. Some of those people, granted, do live here, and they just drive vehicles maybe that have an outdated you know, or an older license plate from where they previously lived or so forth. Some of those people do come in from out of province though and I know that that is concerning and upsetting for so many residents. This though is a good news story twist okay. on that idea. So here we have the Switzer sisters They want residents of Prince Rupert to know that they are going to be driving into BC from Alberta and Saskatchewan. The whole family is coming to spread their parents' ashes. But they said, we want to let the community know in advance that yes, we will have out-of-province license plates, but we don't want to upset anybody. They said they've been tested for COVID-19. They're going to wear masks when they're in public areas, and they want residents to take comfort in that. So they even went so far as to post this on a local community facebook page for the prince rupert area saying you know please be understanding that we are coming here to spread our parents ashes but we are taking all of these precautions in advance to make sure that we are going to be welcomed members in your community
3: what lovely people like yeah that is so thoughtful of them you know because you're right in a small place in a small town that's gonna stand out and just to reassure people like that i just wish we had more of that You took the words right out of my mouth. Thoughtful. That's the best way to sum
6: it up. Just to think, okay, well, how will my presence be received when I go to a different community? Will I be welcomed with open arms or will people be apprehensive to see me there? And in this time of the pandemic, generally speaking, people are apprehensive to see people from out of province in their communities. Whether or not that fear is warranted is sort of a different conversation, but I think it is something that makes people feel very uneasy. So, you know, I, I do respect them so much for taking such a proactive stance, reaching out in advance and saying, we want to ease your concerns. We've been tested. We're going to be responsible when we're in public. We're simply here to spread our parents' ashes.
3: It's just nice that they are concerned about other people, right? Because that's that whole yeah. issue, that conversation that we have, even about mask wearing, is that it's not just to protect the person, it's also to protect the people around them, just in case they are, or I am, or you are an asymptomatic carrier of COVID-19. You put them on the mask, not just to prevent you getting it, but to really mainly prevent other people from getting it. So there's not enough of that thoughtfulness, I think, going on yeah. out there right now.
6: Oh, absolutely. And you know, earlier this week, we spoke to the mayor of Kelowna on this show. And he was saying, when you come to our community, treat it as if you would Treat your own community in, the, in that same way. You know, be respectful when you're here. Be responsible when you're here. Take safety precautions when you're here. Don't just come here to party yes. it up for the weekend and then leave us in, in a lurch and leave us with these growing number of cases. Communities are really concerned about this all around the province. I know there's going to yes. be people heading up to Kelowna this weekend to to enjoy, hopefully, a bit of sunshine up there. But again, as that mayor was pleading, like so many other residents and communities around the province, please be respectful when you're yes. here.
3: Stay in your circle. Good advice. Uh, Nikki, thank you. Thanks, Simi. Have a great weekend. You too. That is our Nikki Reitmeyer there. Yes, with a good news story. We can always use some more of those. And those are good words from the mayor of Kelowna, right? If you're going to be traveling, stay in your circle. Stay in your bubble.